Open your Bibles, please, uh, to the book of Philippians, chapter 1. Let's pray together. Father, we come before you thanking you for your kindness toward us, thanking you for the mercy that you have displayed on our behalf in that you sent your Son to lay down his life as a once-for-all, perfect sacrifice for our sin. Thank you that you uh, deemed that that sacrifice was acceptable and raised him from the dead. And that he has, since that time, ascended up into glory, has been seated at your right hand. He continuously prays for us. He is our advocate. He is our high priest. He is our Savior. He is our coming King and Judge. Thank you for all that you've done. Help us now as we consider your word that we would humble ourselves before you and be challenged, encouraged, and changed. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So we all have jobs. And all of our jobs are a little bit different one to the next. Imagine that you are someone who works on a production line and you're your gasket guy or gasket gal. Now you have noticed, I think, that there, is, there are no superhero hero movies entitled Super Gasket Guy or Super Gasket Girl. Gaskets we take for granted. In fact, the only time you think about a gasket is when your car starts to act funny and you look inside of your engine compartment and you see something oozing from your engine. Or you see this drip underneath your car and you recognize as you look up, oh man, the gasket in my oil pan has has begun to have some problems. Gaskets are not necessarily glamorous But gaskets are, in fact, necessary. Gaskets are part of a bigger product. Sometimes a beautiful car. Sometimes a beautiful aircraft. Or sometimes something that is a seafaring vessel. This morning, as we study through Paul's prayer for the church of Philippi, we will notice some specific items of prayer. Some nitty-gritty of prayer. But he does not leave us wondering what the purpose of these items are. Paul wants the church, Paul wants us, and really God wants us, to maintain a faithful, fruitful gospel partnership so that the church will be a tribute to the glory and praise of God. God intends for us to engage in faithful, fruitful gospel partnership so that we as the church will be a display of God's triumph, a glory and praise to God. So we will not simply be talking this morning about love for love's sake or good for goodness' sake, but fruit for the sake of God's glory. Look, please, with me at Philippians chapter 1, 
beginning in verse 9. And it is my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment, so that you may approve what is excellent and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. The first thing we we come across, the first item that we come across in this prayer is this. Paul wants for you and for me to be a growing, discerning lover. We need a growing, discerning love. He says, and it is my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment. We need a growing, discerning love. Now the term love has been severely cheapened in our society. We love a certain cheeseburger. We love a certain kind of pizza. We love a certain fast casual joint that we've come across. My personal favorite is Chipotle. We, we love Chipotle. Really, that kind of has cheapened what love really is. We've cheapened it by saying, I fall in love with so-and-so and then just as quickly fall out of love with so and so. So the world and our society and we even we ourselves have cheapened what love really means. The love of the Bible is a long, unwavering, unending, self-sacrificial love. A long, unwavering, unending, self-sacrificial love. And so we want to look at that for a few moments. Because Paul's prayer for the church at Philippi And for us, and we know that the real author of this is not just the penman Paul, but God the Holy Spirit Himself. God's desire for you and for me is that we would be those who are growing in an understandable and discerning love. And so with that being said, we need to consider this for a few moments. Take a look please at 1 Corinthians chapter 13. An important element to recognize about 1 Corinthians chapter 13. You're going to love this. This is very insightful. 1 Corinthians 13 comes right in between 1 Corinthians 12 and 14. Do you not feel more enlightened than when you came? In 1 Corinthians 12 and in 1 Corinthians 14, the Apostle Paul is speaking about spiritual gifts. And in between this discussion... Not out of nowhere and not for no purpose, God interjects the heart of what spiritual gifts are all about, which is love. A spiritual gift cannot be operated in without love. Now, we can, we can think we're operating in a spiritual gift. Someone can get up behind the pulpit and can preach a well-prepared, well-studied, and even accurate Bible message. If it is not issued forth in love, it is not spirit-wrought. A spiritual gift to be actually spiritual must be in the realm of the Spirit. And anytime we're walking in the power of the Spirit, what is the first evidence? Well, that was good. I like that fruit. But love. (laughs) Love is the first item of the fruit of the Spirit listed in Galatians chapter 5 and verse 22. So in the midst of this discussion on spiritual gifts, he interjects this important element, the heart of spiritual giftedness. 
and that is love. Beginning in verse 1 of 1 Corinthians 13, If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. Now, we remember the gong show. Did you want to hear the gong? No. If you got the gong, it means something has gone wrong. If we operate and we speak eloquently, and yet it is not operated in love, then you get the, the gong. Or a clanging cymbal. Now a cymbal used in proper time in the midst of other instrumentation can make a beautiful noise, right? A beautiful sound. Music. But just, just picture your, your two-year-old going around the house with some, some cymbals and you're trying to have a conversation with your wife and this is what they're doing. How, how are you enjoying this so far? Bing, 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 bing. They make a lot of noise. Not anything good. So great speech without love is not helpful. Verse 2, And if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains, but have not love, I am nothing. If I give away all I have, and if I deliver up my body to be burned, but have not love, I gain nothing. Now he's, very, he's speaking in great hyperbole here. Uh, who's going to give their body to be burned unless they love the one for whom they're giving their body to be burned? Probably that's not terribly likely to happen. But the point is, you can go to the nth degree in your servitude, but if that servitude is not issued forth by the love of the Spirit wrought by God, then you're really just wasting time. Love is essential to Christianity. And love is far more than some feeling toward a burger or a french fry. In verse 4, he starts to describe... Love. Love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never ends. Love never ceases. Love never quits. Love doesn't fall in and out. Love endures. He goes on to speak of those things that endure and things that don't endure. He speaks about something that is to come still when we see our Savior face to face that that is eternal. Love endures while faith and hope find their realization. Love is the superior virtue. It is an evidence of God and His work. And love is what Paul is praying that would abound in the lives of believers like you and like me. That's, uh, that's the call. In 1 John chapter 3, verses 16-18, to 18, this will be on the screen, this is now an outworking, a very 
practical outworking of what love looks like in day-to-day life. It says this, by this we know love, that He, Jesus, laid down His life for us. And we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. But if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, it's an interesting way to say that, against him, how does God's love abide in him? Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. And so he starts to speak of how, how that works out. Jesus laid down his life for us, and God says we ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. And, and, and you can't say, I'm willing to lay my life down for you if, you don't, if you're not willing to meet someone's need when they're having difficulty. Love is not easy. In fact, love is real love. The love being spoken of in God's Word, it, it really is it's virtually impossible, which is why we need grace. You see, this morning, we're not here to talk about how you can be a better lover. We would all leave, and we'd try really hard, and we might do really well for a couple of days. That's giving us credit. But we're going to fail at this without the all-powerful God undergirding us, bringing us forth, issuing forth His love in and through us. Paul is praying not only that they would love, but their love would be an abounding love. That they would abound more and more, he says back in Philippians chapter 1 and verse 9. So a growing love. And this is not the only time, the only place that Paul speaks about a growing love. Now take a look at 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 for a moment. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. This is not the only place that Paul says, hey, you're loving, but... You, you need to love more. There needs to be a more abundance of love coming from you. And Now, I think any one of us that looks ourselves in the mirror and is honest, we recognize that our love, our love does seem to come to an end. The expression of that love comes to an end. For, for you, it might be different than for me. Now, I hate to always throw myself under the bus like this, but I have no one else to pick on but myself. My love can demonstrate its end when I sit at a supper table and there's more noise at that table than I want. Now, we have um, you know, hardwood floors and a little um, uh, rug underneath our dining room table. and We have walls and then ceilings. And it's pretty small and there are seven of us. And so noise tends to echo off of things and bounce around. And so one little bit of noise ends up being a little bit more than, than maybe if we were in here or maybe in, if we were in a, a, a room that had a lot of padding in it. So in my dining room, there tends to be an intensification of noise. And, and then just think about it. There's, there's a two-year-old. There's enough noise for, for your entire life in a two-year-old. And then there's a four-year-old there's more noise than you ever wanted in your lifetime in the four-year-old, and then, then you've got other people. I'm not going to say any more than that, other than to say it, it just tends to, to ratchet up. And, and I like calm. I like peace. And if one of those people is at odds with another, it starts to get moving out of, out of control, and, and my exhibition of love can come to a screeching and terrifying halt. 
But God's love doesn't. And the call upon me and upon you is that the love that God has issued forth should be on display in us continuously. Here in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, he's just talked about uh, the area of sexual purity and sanctification in verses 1 through 8. And now he continues in the concept of sanctification in verse 9. He says, Now concerning brotherly love, you have no need for anyone to write to you. For you yourselves have been taught by God to love one another. Well, that's good. At a boy. But he says in verse 10, For that indeed is what you are doing to all the brothers throughout Macedonia. But we urge you, brothers, to do this, how often? More and more. And to aspire to live quietly and to mind your own affairs and to work with your own hands as we instructed you so that you may walk properly before outsiders and be dependent on no one. And so he's talking about a love that's growing and how it it really infiltrates everything about life. It infiltrates your life so much that your neighbors notice. That your coworkers notice. If your neighbors, coworkers, and family members don't see the love of God in you or in me, I'm certainly not abounding in love. And the frequency of that love needs to be taking an upward trend. I, I need to be yielding myself to God's Spirit so that the love of God is on display more and more. I ought to abound in it more and more. And then he gives two qualifiers back in Philippians. He wants us to abound in love more and more in knowledge and all discernment. That's how he describes it. The word knowledge, well, we know what that means, right? The, the love being called for is to be patterned after God's love. Is that correct? The love that God calls for in the text is to be patterned after His own love. Take a look with me to Ephesians chapter 3. So if, if I want to assess myself, and I ought to do that from time to time, and you want to assess yourself, and you ought to do that from time to time, more frequently than our Lord's Supper examinations. It should be more regular than that. Daily, weekly, monthly, we should be considering ourselves. Don't look too, too long because you'll be bummed out. But you have to assess yourself. And we should compare the love that we are displaying with the love that God displays. Because that is the ultimate standard. In Ephesians chapter 3, please, we're going to break right into the middle of Paul's prayer for the church of Ephesus. Start reading at verse 17. It says, So that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Now to Him who was able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think, according to the power at work within us, to Him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. So the call in this passage isn't even to go in love. The call in this passage is to understand God's love. And the understanding of God's love doesn't even take place 
apart from God's grace. If I can't understand God's love without God's grace, how can I exhibit God's love without grace? It's very interesting because this is is packed with, with grace statements. Look in verse 16. We didn't read it. Verse 16, that according to the riches of His glory He may grant to you to be what? Strengthened with what? Power whereby? Through His Spirit where? In your inner being. (laughs) So He has supercharged verse 16 with grace. Yes? Okay. Verse 17, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. Can I make Christ dwell in my heart? Is that a gracious endowment of God? We're supercharged with grace. Verse 18, so that we may have strength. Is that grace? Yes. Strength to do what? Just to comprehend. Just to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth, how wide it is, and the length, how long it is, and the height, how high it brings us, and the depth, how far he was willing to go to bring it to pass. And to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge so that, it says that, you can, a lot of times when you see that, you can just add so that, so that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. In the context, what is the fullness of God referring to? This all-encompassing love. So He doesn't fill us simply so we'll have brain power, though He does, so we can comprehend, but also so that that love that God has enabled us to comprehend with all the rest of the saints is then to be in full expression in my life. Where? Where should that love of God be in full expression in my life? In my house, in my car, at work, at church, at the grocery store, and even at Walmart. (laughs) Oh, how we fail at Walmart. (laughs) Do you fail at Walmart? You should go to this one over here. You will fail at that Walmart. We have to understand what God's love is before it issues forth in us properly. And then he says, in all discernment. In all discernment. That word means to have the capacity... To have the capacity to perceive clearly and hence to understand the real nature of something. (laughs) Really? You wanted me to write all of that down? No, I didn't. He's talking about having the ability to then look at circumstances and see what love looks like when it's on display. You know, discernment, the, the word, a similar term, this is this word discernment in Philippians chapter 1, which I know you're not there, in Philippians 1.9, it's used, that's the only place that word is used. But like a cousin word is used in the book of Hebrews chapter 5. Listen to what it says. 
In Hebrews 5.14, But solid food is for the mature, for those who have their powers of discernment, their powers of discernment trained by constant practice to distinguish good from evil. He's talking about being able to process life and circumstances to see what love does in those situations. Have you met people who have been trained in a certain field and they fail when the moment is big and bright? You've like, okay, you've got all the information, you went through all the classes, you took all the tests, you passed the test, now you're in real life, okay? You're trained, you're certified, and then the moment comes for that to be put into action, and they're like, nothing. Really? That's the best you got. You froze in this time of desperate need. In the realm of athletics, the goal of practice is not just to gain skill, but to gain skill that naturally displays itself in the big moment. I can picture myself. I can picture myself back in the day. I used to be a decent basketball player. I picture myself back in the day. It's me and the ball and the basket. And over and over, I'd, I'd spin the ball back, I'd grab it, and I'd be saying, three, two, one, and I'd take the shot, and then either I would lose or I would win the championship, right? And the Celtics won their 17th banner. Now, today would be 18th banner, but you get the point. Over and over, uh, just spin the ball, grab it, three, two, one, take that last shot to try to put pressure on myself so that when I'm in an actual game and the, the clock is actually ticking down and the game is actually on the line, that that situation is not foreign to me. Three, two, one. The goal of these skills is when the moment of need arises that that is exactly what comes to pass. In the book of Hebrews, it's talking about honing your skill. Well, here's the problem, folks. You can't hone God's skill. Since love is a gracious act of God, I can't hone it. However, as Paul is getting at in this text, and God is getting at in this text, he wants our love to abound, to grow, to be more and more expressive in knowledge, because I know the one who loves me. I know what that love looks like. I know what that love is like. I know what it encompasses. And in discernment, how that works its way out. And so, while knowing and 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 thinking these things through will not make my love better, and it will not, in fact, even make me love. You know what it will do? It'll point its nasty finger at me when I choose another route. And that's what I need. I need for the real love of God to point its finger at me and say, that is not my love. That is not what I've displayed for you. That is not how I've described true Love And what it does is it causes me to repent. It causes me to confess my sin and to say, God, I am on my own program. 
If so-and-so can say this and make me upset, if so-and-so can do this and I react like this, if the guy at the store can do this and I don't like it, someone pushing their cart down the middle of the aisle, stopping and getting stuff from both sides, even though there are eight other people trying to get by and they have no thought for who else is around, if that can get under my skin, something is wrong with me. Something's wrong with me. So Paul says, I'm praying that your love will abound more and more in understanding what it is and what it looks like. Because if you don't know what it is, you can't judge yourself and you can't assess whether your skills, God's grace, are being put into practice. Are we just loving for love's sake? Are we just trying to love because it's the right thing to do? No, no, and Paul makes that abundantly clear. Head back to Philippians, please. Philippians chapter 1. Paul makes it abundantly clear that we are not loving just because it's a good thing to do. We're loving for a greater purpose. As we turn our attention now to verse 10, what we will recognize is that we need to prepare for meeting our Savior We need to prepare for meeting our Savior. Paul uses two purpose clauses in verse 10. At the beginning he says, so that you may approve what is excellent. Now, so that. So that is not, that's not a sentence in and of itself, right? So it's dependent backwards. We need a love that's abounding in knowledge and discernment in order that I can approve the things that are excellent. And then he goes on and he uses and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ. The word uh, so in verse 10, right in the middle of the so is, is a hinna clause. Hinna. It means in order that. It's a purpose clause. So he uses two purpose clauses. At the beginning it's so that you may approve what is excellent and so that you may be pure and blameless at the day of Christ. He's talking about the day of Christ. He's talking about the day we meet our Savior. Why why does He bring Him? Why does He bring the Savior? Why does He bring the day of Christ into our attention span as we talk about love and discernment? There's a day coming, folks, when we're going to meet our Savior face to face. Our Savior has more than one role. Our Savior has a multitude of roles from creator to sustainer to savior to advocate to high priest to coming king but he's also a coming judge we've already seen this phrase the day of Christ in Philippians look at verse 6 he says I am sure of this that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at what? The day of Jesus Christ. The concept that he's bringing up is the fact that one day we're going to meet our Savior face to face and He will be our judge. Look at chapter 2, Philippians 2, and verse 16. He tells us to be holding fast to the word of life so that in the day of Christ I may be proud that I did not run in vain or labor in vain. There's a day that we will meet our Savior 
What will his role be that day? He will be our judge. Take a look, please, with me at 2 Corinthians chapter 5. In 2 Corinthians 5 and verse 10, a very uh, familiar passage of Scripture to many of us. Paul writes in verse 10, For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or, our translation uses the term evil, the word is not that, but um, the, the concept of not worthy. Not worthy. Whether it's good or unworthy. The concept is not sin. The concept is that of useless. Paul, in 2 Corinthians 5, and Philippians 1, and Philippians 2, is not using a scare tactic. He is not using a scare tactic. He's not saying, hey, get yourself in line, because if when Jesus comes, you're going to be in trouble. You're going to be in trouble now. Be careful. He's not doing that. That is not... That is not what the Scripture does. In fact, he uses this this phrase elsewhere, and it's really helpful to understanding Paul's usage in 2 Corinthians 5 and in the passages we've already mentioned. Take a look at 1 Corinthians chapter 4. Excuse me, 1 Corinthians chapter 1. 1 Corinthians chapter 1. Now, I want to remind you, before we read this passage, back in the book of Philippians, where, where our study is from, He says, so that you may approve what is excellent, and as a result of that, be pure or sincere and blameless at the day of Christ, at the judgment seat of Christ. He wants us to be pure and blameless at the judgment seat of Christ, which is why he wants us to be discerning what is appropriate, what is best. Here in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, we're in the thanksgiving section as he opens the letter. And he starts in verse 4 and he says, I give thanks to my God always for you because of the grace of God that was given you in Christ Jesus. That in every way you were enriched in Him in all speech and in all knowledge. Even as the testimony about Christ was confirmed among you so that you are not lacking in any gift as you wait for the revealing of our Lord Jesus Christ, who will sustain you to the end. And how will He sustain you to the end? Read it with me, please. Guiltless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. God is faithful by whom you were called into the fellowship of His Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. You see, He uses this same concept of the judgment seat of Christ and this concept of blamelessness at the judgment seat of Christ and he puts the onus on God. I'm thanking God because he has called you. I'm thanking God that he has graced you. I'm thanking God that he has gifted you with all of the spiritual gifts so that you can speak in knowledge and you can do those things that are most important to make the church flourish in the gospel. This is great. And and you're waiting for the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. This is glorious. And God will keep you to the end. And he's going to keep you guiltless, blameless. We cannot extract God's perfect 
an unfailing plan with God's admonition for our proper activity. Did you hear that? We cannot extract God's perfect, unfaltering plan with God's admonition for proper activity. Head back, please, with me to the book of Philippians. Philippians chapter 1. God is the one who ensures our blamelessness. But in light of that day when we stand before our Savior, there are things that ought to be in place because of His working. And what is He calling for from us in Philippians 1.10? He's calling for us to be approving what is excellent. This is a comparative value statement. He is not saying, that is bad and that is good. Choose the good and let go of the bad. He takes it up a higher notch than that. He says, this is good and this is best. Choose what's best. The word is used in a number of other places around the New Testament. This word excellent, excellent or excelling. I'll just share one of them with you, and it will be a familiar passage because it's a parable that the Lord Jesus spoke in Matthew 6, 25 and 26. He says, Therefore I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink, nor about your body, what you will put on. Is not your life more than food and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns. And yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Listen carefully. Are you not of more value than they? That's the word, more value. Does God value the birds? He does, doesn't He? We don't like aimlessly just destroy life. If you kill something, there's, there ought to be a reason for it, right? If you go hunting for a deer, you ought to eat it. We don't just kill it and say, hey, look at what I did. I have conquered the, the, the uh, fearful white-tailed deer. Aren't I powerful? Well, you used a gun. Come on. If you're going to kill something, you had better eat it. Because the deer has value. It is life received and sustained by God. God also values the sparrows. But he says, are you not of more value to him than the sparrows? And that is the concept back in Philippians 1. He wants our love to be abounding in knowledge and discernment so that when we make choices, we're making value judgments. Best. Best. What's the best choice? What's the best way to live? What's the best way to think? God wants us to discern what are the best of good decisions. And too many people, folks, and maybe you're not one of them, too many people settle for the baseline. They settle for, eh, what can I do and still be all right before God? What can I do and it be okay? Well, the Bible doesn't say not to do X, Y, and Z, so I'm just going to do it. Maybe, maybe you can. Maybe you ought to. But like, don't settle for like the, the least common denominator. Don't, don't settle for the lowest possible form 
of what you think of Christianity, shoot for the stars, folks. Like, if, if you were a basketball player, I know you're not, and I don't even want to be, but if you were a basketball player, shouldn't you want to be the best? Not so you can flex your muscles and say, ah, oh, I'm better than you. Like, anything you do, don't you want to do it to the best of your ability? Be the best painter you can be? The best shoemaker you can be? Probably don't have any shoemakers in here. If we do, I probably have a few pairs you can help me with. Anything we're doing, we need to do it with our all. Maybe you think, well, my job's not that big of a deal. Really, is it not a big deal to God? Don't take too lightly the things that God blesses you with. God has given you a job so you can sustain life in your family and, and make sure that things are needs are met. It's not the best job. Maybe someone else has a better one. Maybe someone else has a more glamorous one. But didn't, didn't God give that to you? That doesn't mean you can't seek a better one. Do your job the best you can until that next one comes along. Instead of seeking the, the least we can do, seeking the best we can do, God has told us to be growing in our understanding and discernment of His love in order to approve the best type of activity, the type of activity that will prepare us to confidently meet our Savior face to face. That day's coming. Do you live in light of that coming day? Do you live in light of that coming day? Paul is trying to awaken us under the inspiration of the Spirit to live in the light of that coming day. You will face Jesus. Are you ready? Are you ready for that? As we move into verse 11, Paul, under the inspiration of the Spirit, tells us that we need to live for the glory of God. In verse 11, he begins it by saying, filled, filled with the fruit of righteousness. Now I have to give you a little bit of a, of a, of a grammar lesson. It'll just be a moment. He uses a perfect passive participle. Perfect means something that took place in the past that continued on. There were things that take place in the past and that's the end of it, okay? We went to Disney World. That's the end of it, okay? You don't, they don't give you more treats when you leave. It's over once you went. Done. However, if you do something in the past that has produced a new reality... And from that moment on, there are continuing evidences of that past impact that took place there. Now we have something that is a continual result. And that is what the perfect tense does for us. Something that took place in the past that continues on. So when he talks about being filled with the fruits of righteousness, he's not saying, well, I exhibited love on September 17th of this year. Aren't you proud of me? No, no, filled with the fruits of righteousness, that's a, a, something that has continuing results. Notice I also said that it was passive. You didn't fill yourself with the fruit of righteousness. God did that. And then it says, through Jesus Christ. We'll get to that in just a moment. In order for us 
to have the confidence that he speaks up in verse speaks of in verse 10 there must be this reality that he speaks about taking place in verse 11 we will stand confidently before our savior pure the real deal and blameless without fault at the 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 seat of Jesus Christ if we've been filled with the fruits of righteousness that come through Jesus Christ. The approval is based upon this continuous activity. The approval of what is excellent and the subsequent purity and blamelessness that result is related to the fact that we've been filled with the fruit of righteousness. In other words, decisions made based upon an abounding love result in tangible, listen carefully, tangible demonstrations of righteous activity in our lifetime and prepare us to meet our Savior with great confidence. Why is it called the fruit of righteousness? That will be the, this is the last concept that we're going to really try to analyze here. Why is it called the fruit of righteousness? I'm going to have you turn to 1 John chapter 3, but don't put that on the screen yet because there's a verse before it that I want people to see once they get to 1 John chapter 3. 1 John chapter 3, please. Why is it called the fruit of righteousness? Jesus uses a similar expression, but He's not talking about righteousness. He's talking about something else. In Matthew chapter 11, in verse 19, He says, Wisdom is justified by her deeds. That's the ESV. In other translations, you might see it something like this. That wisdom is justified by her children. And you read it and you're like, so in order to see whether I'm wise, I've got to see what my kids do. Ah, hope that goes well. <laughs> but that's not the point. The point has nothing to do with offspring. It's the fact that wisdom has offspring. Wisdom has offspring. What it means is, when God's wisdom is actively residing upon you and you're acting upon it, that wisdom has a demonstrable result. Wisdom has action, which is why our ESV translates it deeds. Now in 1 John chapter 3, he's talking about righteousness. And he's going to speak about it very similarly to this concept that Jesus brings up in Matthew chapter 11. That righteousness has deeds or children. In 1 John chapter 3, beginning in verse 4, the Bible says this, Everyone who makes a practice of sinning also practices lawlessness. Sin is lawlessness, or acting as though there is no law, or not allowing the law to restrain us. So, people that allow sin to rule them pretend that the law doesn't restrain. Right? Make sense? Verse 5. You know that He appeared in order to take away sins, and in Him there is no sin. No one who abides in Him keeps on sinning. That doesn't mean they don't keep on sinning occasionally. It means they don't keep on making a practice of sin. No one who keeps on sinning has either seen Him or known Him. Little children, let no one deceive you. Whoever practices righteousness, what does it say? Is righteous as He is righteous. Whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil, for the devil has been sinning from the beginning. 
The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. No one born of God makes a practice of sinning, for God's seed abides in him, and he cannot keep on sinning because he has been born of God. By this it is evident who are the children of God. By this it is evident who are the children of God. By this it is evident who are the children of God. It doesn't say, by this someone becomes a child of God. By this it is evident who are the children of God. What? By what? By what? And who are the children of the devil? Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God. Did you hear that? Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God. Nor is the one who does not love his brother. This is what Paul is saying about being pure and blameless at the day of Christ. Loving our brother does not make us pure and blameless. Loving our brother demonstrates that God has filled us with the fruit of righteousness through Jesus Christ. It means that God doesn't save someone and leave them as a rotten pagan without regard to anything he said. There's a distortion of grace in our culture where they think they think that when God says He gracious us, uh, that He doesn't say that there is to be any change in our lives. And that is absolutely a lie from the devil. The Bible speaks about God changing us. What God continuously says is, you can't change you. You can't do the things I've called you to do. You are unable to do it. You have no power to make yourself loving and righteous and kind. You can't do it. Now I'm speaking for God. But I can. God can. God can make us loving and righteous and kind. And that is the idea. Head back to Philippians chapter 1. This righteousness in source and activity. This righteousness in source, its ultimate reservoir, and its activity, its outworking, are through Jesus Christ. Let me ask you a question. Have you been made righteous? Did you trust Jesus Christ as your Savior? You recognized you're a sinner? You saw that God had a solution for you in that Jesus, the one who never sinned, laid down His life on Calvary's cross to bear your sin. Was crucified, condemned for your sin, buried and raised from the dead by the Father. And through faith in Him, God not only removes your iniquity, your sin, and your record of sin forever, but grants to you the perfect record of Jesus Christ, righteousness. Are you righteous? Have you trusted Christ as your Savior? If the answer to that question is, yes, I'm righteous, your records in heaven are changed, you're righteous. Because you're righteous, that righteousness should have children the fruit of righteousness. Jesus is the source of that righteousness. That's why we trust Christ alone. 
And he is also the one who brings that activity to the forefront. That righteous activity in life also comes through Christ, which is why we talk about submitting to the Spirit regularly. Is your record in heaven one of righteousness? Okay, yes, you say yes. Are your days filled? Are your days filled with evidence that Jesus Christ is at work within you? The result of Jesus' activity in us, in accordance with this text, is the glory and praise of God. Look at again at verse 11. Filled with the fruits of righteousness that come through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. The whole concept here is not so that we'll do loving things and kind things and good things. The whole concept is that God is preparing us for the day we meet our Savior and in this life making us trophies of His grace. The world around us needs to see the glory of of God at work in this day. We get stuck. We get stuck in our minimalist thinking. I'm just manning the gasket machine. Yes, sir, it's still running. Yes, sir, there are still gaskets coming out the other side. Every now and then, ladies and gentlemen, every now and then, we need to leave the gasket machine room when we're done with work, and go out to the lot and take a look at the Ford Mustang that we were part of. Without that gasket, no Ford Mustang. This is the outcome. This is, the, this is what we're working at. I get stuck on the gasket in this machine, making sure it's running and making sure that the gaskets are coming out. Okay, quality assurance. Everything's good. This is great. But if we just get stuck in the gasket, we're, we're minimizing what's happening. If we're stuck in the love or the, the righteousness or the kindness, we're, we're minimizing. There's something far greater. Look at the outcome. There's the Ford Mustang. Look at the, the finished product. And for us, the finished product is not something we look back and say, look at what I've done. The finished product is, this is not for me. This is about the glory and praise of God. The love being called for is to that end, for God's glory. Approving what is best, excellent, is not for my glory. It's for His glory. Abounding, discerning, sacrificial love. Making the best choices. Allowing Jesus to produce the fruit of righteousness in your life and mine. These things give us confidence about our coming meeting with the Savior and they enable us to know God is being glorified in our lives. Gospel partnership. Gospel partnership must result in fruitful lives. This is the work of the church. A few questions as we close. Do you pray for people like this? Secondly, if you had to face Jesus today, would you stand confidently that you are pure and blameless because He has been working in you? And thirdly, 
Do the regular activities of your life display that you are living as a trophy or a symbol of God's glory? Let's pray together. Father, we need you. We, we want to be vessels fitted for your use. We want our family members, our co-workers, our neighbors, people we meet, to see your glory on display in our lives. We want you to be seen for who you are. And we want to be instruments of that. We pray that you'd help us to yield ourselves to you. Recognizing that a lack of these things is, is really um, separating ourselves from those things that are most important. You have saved us for a purpose. And we pray, Father, that others would see that purpose, your glory. That others would see your love in full expression in our lives. Help us not to settle for anything less. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.